0: Greetings and welcome to Etzheim's Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. came to Beth Page and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. and uh, Yeshua sent two of his disciples saying to them, "Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this?" say, "The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly." They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. When they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Yeshua had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Yeshua uh, and cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, uh, while others spread branches uh, that they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Baruch shamaronai. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Yeshua entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, uh, Yeshua was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for pigs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Yerushalayim, Yeshua entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers? The chief priests and the Torah teachers heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. But they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Amen. So on the overhead, we have it here. Let's look at this famous passage in under three headings. Number one, the character Yeshua has. Number two, the power that he brings. And number three, how that power reproduces his character uh, in you and me. So so again, on the overhead, uh, we're going to see his character in the triumphal entry. We're going to see the power he brings in the cleansing of the temple. Uh, And we're going to see something of how he reproduces that in us in the curious incident of the fig tree. So first, the character uh, that Yeshua has. When he arrives into Jerusalem, he's hailed as a king. Uh, The crowds lay down their cloaks in front of him, and and they hail him with all these messianic titles. Uh, And the scripture quotes, and they quote scriptures as some very messianic passages. So, for example, uh, when they say Hosanna, the Hebrew there is Hoshiana, uh, and it means save us. Uh, The next one, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118 which is very Messianic. All the rabbis see Psalm 118 as an extremely Messianic Psalm. Uh, The same same word, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is also said of of a bridegroom at every Jewish wedding. And Yeshua is our coming bridegroom. Amen. It was also the last uh, part of the Hallel Psalm said at at Passover. I mean, Yeshua said at his last Pesach Seder, at the last supper. And Yeshua and his disciples, his disciples and Yeshua, they would have ended their Pesach Seder by singing this particular psalm, Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel Psalms. And most of all, it was also the last psalm sung by the Levitical choir as the priests were slaughtering the Pesach lambs in the temple on Passover, even as Yeshua was being crucified at the same time as our ultimate Pesach lamb. Hallelujah. Uh, And uh, this psalm contains this very famous Messianic phrase from Psalm 118, verse 22. We'll put it on the overhead. Uh, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Yeshua was rejected by the leaders of our people, but he became the chief cornerstone. Uh, And the phrase that the crowd shouted, blessed is the final phrase, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, this links Yeshua to King David. Uh, and, and, and uh, a very well-known Jewish title for the Messiah was the son of David. So in the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, Yeshua is being hailed by the people as the messianic king. Uh, and kings would, would typically ride into their capital or some other city and have the crowds hail them. Uh, but Yeshua deliberately does something here that seems jarring, uh, that does not fit the typical entrance of a king. Uh, What's wrong with this picture uh, is what Yeshua wants you to ask uh, because he doesn't ride in on a big war horse uh, the way kings and generals would. Uh, instead, he rides in on a baby donkey, <laughs> a colt, the foal of a donkey, one in which no one has ever ridden before. So here's a Roman em- emperor or, or a general riding in on a great war horse. And in contrast, here's Yeshua, the king, the ultimate king, riding in on a baby donkey, (laughs) maybe almost like something a hobbit would ride, (laughs) Uh, or or Sancho Panza, uh, the lowly servant from from Man of La Mancha. Yeshua chose this animal, of course, in fulfillment of the famous messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, Batzion, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, But he also chose it deliberately to juxtapose majesty with meekness, uh, power with weakness. Yeshua's saying, I'm a king, but I'm not a king who fits into the world's categories of kingship because I bring together majesty with meekness uh, and power with weakness. So let's look a little further at this triumphal entry and Yeshua riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As I said, this was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which all the rabbis unanimously interpret as a messianic prophecy. Uh, We also see this reference in in Jacob's famous prophecy over Judah to become the future line of of the kings of Israel uh, and the tribe from which the Messiah will come. So look at uh, Genesis 49.11. It says of Judah, He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine." Uh, and the rabbis tie these two prophecies together. Uh, Genesis 49.11 about Judah and Zechariah 9.9 9 with, uh, with the king riding in on a donkey. They tie them together uh, as a messianic prophecy. Uh, and So we, 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 we read this from the rabbis in Genesis 98-9. Uh, uh, his foal and his donkey's colt in Genesis 49.11 refer to that time, the rabbis say, when he will come of whom it's written in Zechariah 9.9, 9, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The rabbis also note this apparent contradiction between Zechariah 9.9, which says Messiah will come on a donkey, and Daniel 7.13, which says he will come on the clouds. So Daniel 7.13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And uh, Rabbi Yahushua ben Levi resolves this apparent contradiction by stating this. We'll put down the overhead. He says, this rabbi says, Is Messiah coming on the clouds? Or is he coming on a donkey? If the generation merits redemption, Messiah will come on the clouds of heaven. If they don't, he'll come to them humble and mounted on a donkey. So if our people are worthy, Messiah will come with the clouds of heaven. Otherwise, he'll come on a donkey. Uh, And we were not worthy. Uh, We were steeped in sin. Our leaders rejected Messiah in the first century. So he came on a donkey. But when he returns, our people will look upon the one whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him, and they'll cry out, Baruch Ababa Shamaronai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll welcome him home to Jerusalem. Uh, and thus, Paul says, All Israel shall be saved. And, and so, Yeshua returns, we read in Revelation, with the clouds of heaven, uh, riding on a white horse. Revelation 19, verse 11 I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. His name is the word of God. Uh, and the armies which are in heaven were following him, uh, the clouds of heaven. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword by which to strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, this contrast between this lowly donkey... And this exalted Son of Man on the clouds of heaven reminds me of a famous sermon preached hundreds of years ago in in 1738 uh, by Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, called The Excellence of Yeshua, of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, And it's based on Revelation 5, verse 5, which says this, and one of the elders said to me, and i put the overhead on Revelation uh, 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, uh, weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed open the book. So I looked, and behold, and in the midst of the throne stood a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. So John, the author of Revelation, he's told to look for a lion. Uh, He looks, but instead, in the midst of the throne, he sees a lamb. And Jonathan Edwards, in this sermon, he goes on to say this uh, on the overhead. He says, a lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and is sacrificed for human clothing and food. But Yeshua is both, because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb wonderfully meet in him. Indeed, there is in Yeshua a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. But in Messiah, we meet together, he says, both infinite highness and infinite accessibility infinite justice, but also infinite grace, infinite glory, and at the same time, infinite humility, infinite majesty, and infinite meekness, absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission, infinite all-sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. He's a lion, he's a lamb, he's a rock, Uh, he's a pearl, Uh, he's the mighty captain, he's a tender lover, He's a fragile flower. He's a mighty tree of life. Yeshua combines character traits that, that would, would never be combined in any one single person. Uh, the traits that, that we would consider mutually exclusive, even contradictory, uh, he combines them in ways you'd never think could be combined in the same person. Majesty and weakness, power and weakness. There's the character of Yeshua. Uh, that's point number one, the excellence of Yeshua. Uh, on the overhead. The second, uh, in the cleansing of the temple, now we're going to learn something uh, of the power that Yeshua brings. Verse 15 says, He enters the temple courts, which is the outer temple area. Uh, now, uh, if you enter the temple courts, uh, they were the, and, I'm sorry, you enter the temple mount in the first century, there, there were these enormous outer courts which uh, King Herod had built uh, before you get into the temple proper. And the first and largest area that you would encounter was the court of the Gentiles. Uh, the Court of the Nations, uh, the Goyim, uh, the Yethne. Uh, This was the only place in the temple area where the non-Jews were allowed to go. It was the largest of all the divisions in the temple, uh, and you had to go through it to to get to the rest. And, And contrary to God's law, it was the place where all the business operations of the temple were set up. And what a mammoth operation it was. Because when you walked in, you would have seen literally thousands of people buying and selling sacrificial animals uh, at hundreds of locations. You'd also see hundreds of foreign uh, currency money changers. Josephus tells us that in a a typical Pesach week in in, in Yeshua's time, over a quarter million, over 250,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in these temple courts. Have you ever seen how, for example, how tumultuous and loud and chaotic our own financial trading floors are? Like the New York Stock Exchange or the Chicago Commodities Exchange. Well, it was probably nothing compared to the first century temple courts. (laughs) And this was the place, ironically, this was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to find God. This was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to pray. And so what did Yeshua do? Look at Mark 11, verse 15. Yeshua entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow merchandise to be carried through the temple courts. Yeshua, he starts overturning the furniture and throwing the tables over. Mark 11:17. 17. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it into a robber's den and this absolutely shocked the priests and the scribes and all those listening and watching. Why? Well, on the, on the one hand, it was a popular belief that when the Messiah would show up, he would, he would purge the temple of foreigners. But here, Yeshua is being an advocate for them. He's restoring the place for the Gentiles to come and to pray and to seek the Lord. You know, so we modern people, we like that about Yeshua, right? And many of you are, are from the nations. Uh, so we like this aspect. Uh, But what he was doing was even more radical than that, uh, because he's foreshadowing that through his death and resurrection, the Gentiles now can go directly to God and are grafted into the natural olive tree of Israel. They're adopted sons and daughters. Uh, They're brought near, and they become part of the commonwealth of Israel. Amen? And the Israelites, uh, seeing and hearing Yeshua, uh, knowing the history of the tabernacle and the temple, they're shocked by his actions and his statements. So first of all, they're shocked because he's letting the Gentiles in, contrary to their expectations. Secondly, we remember, this is Pesach week. This is Passover week. And in preparation for Passover, every Jewish home would go through this spring cleaning process to purge the house of leaven, culminating in this ritual called Berechat Chametz, uh, the final cleansing of the house of all the leaven. Well, what's Yeshua doing? He's going to his father's house, and he's performing the ceremony of Berachat Chametz. He's cleansing his father's house of all the leaven. (laughs) He's purging the temple from the profane commercialism and corruption that it had fallen into. He's sweeping out his father's house in preparation for Passover. And third, he's also prophetically entering the temple in fulfillment of Malachi 3 verse one, which says, behold, says the Lord, I'm going to send my messenger to clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord. The rabbis unanimously see this Malachi passage as a messianic prophecy. Messiah will suddenly come to his temple. This is exactly what Yeshua did. And notice the text actually says the Lord himself will come into his temple. Yeshua is the divine Lord in the flesh, God incarnate. Now the Sadducees and the priests, they have become very corrupt, and allowed all this commerce in the temple and the charging of exorbitant prices. And and of course, they skimmed a hefty profit off the top, greatly enriching the Sadducees and the priests who controlled the temple. But Yeshua cleansing the temple also fulfills another prophecy from the book of Malachi where it describes how the Messiah will bring a refining fire to the temple to purify the corrupt priesthood. So look at Malachi 3, verse 3. He sits as a smelter and purifier of silver, He'll purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver so that they may be presented to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, the history of the temple and the tabernacle actually starts way back in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden was the ultimate sanctuary. It was where the presence of God dwelt. And it was a paradise. Why? Because the presence of God was there. Because in the presence of God, death, decay, deformity, evil, uh, imperfection cannot exist. It can't exist. In God's presence is shalom, absolute flourishing, total fulfillment and peace and harmony, complete love and joy. Uh, that was the sanctuary. Uh, but when we, did, we uh, decided to, to build our own lives on other things instead of God, when we decided to center our lives on other things and not God and to look to other things for our ultimate meaning and significance, when we did that, we lost the sanctuary. Uh, We left the sanctuary. Uh, We were were shut out of the sanctuary and as Adam and Eve uh, left the sanctuary of God's presence and the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, they turned around and they saw at the door, at the gate, what? Genesis 3, verse 24. After the Lord God drove the man out He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden the cherubim uh, cherubim, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Etzchayim, to the Tree of Life. The Lord placed this flaming sword flashing back and forth at the entrance of the garden. This is the sword that no one could ever escape. No one could ever get through or, or around or under. The sword barred the way back into paradise. Uh, back into the presence of God? What's that all about? Here's what it's it's about. Because we built our lives on other things, uh, power, status, acclaim, popularity, pleasure, politics, peace, uh, wealth, uh, ethnicity, family. When you make those, anything else into, into an ultimate thing, That's what causes all the wars and conflicts and resentment and jealousy and violence and injustice and exploitation in this world. Turning from God has had horrendous consequences. Uh, We've trampled each other. Uh, We've trampled on this world. Uh, And it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Can I now get back into your presence? If you've been wronged, I mean really wronged, you've been, for example, the victim of a major crime, or if someone has really wronged you, or really abused you, or harmed you, and you've suffered, or if you've suffered serious violence, and the perpetrator comes and says, sorry, can't we just let it go? You say no. <laughs> that would be unjust. I'm not talking about vindictiveness, or bitterness, or vengeance. Uh, if you've really been wronged, you know that the guilty party saying sorry is not enough. Something more is required. Some kind of costly payment has to be made to put things right. And that's what the flaming sword is. It's the sword of eternal justice. No one can get back into the presence of God unless you go under that sword, unless you pay for what's happened. But who can survive that? Who could survive the sword? So it looks like we'll never get back into God's presence. And that question, who could survive the sword, how will we ever get back into the presence of God? That question remains despite the fact that God established the tabernacle and the temple. You know, at the back of the tabernacle and the temple uh, was this uh, cube-shaped compartment uh, uh, walled off by, by a thick veil uh, of the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies uh, was the Ark of the Covenant and a mercy seat where the Shekinah glory of God, God's presence dwelt. And it was dangerous to us. Uh, and the thick veil closed it off. And only once a year, on Yom Kippur, which we've just completed, only one person, the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, he could enter in. But only after extensive ritual cleansings, and only after he carried his own blood sacrifice. Why the need for blood sacrifice? Because there's no way back into God's presence without going under the sword. And And even then, it was just a symbol, a shadow, a type of the ultimate atoning work that had to happen. Uh, It temporarily, the blood temporarily covered our sins but it did not change our hearts the blood of the sacrifices so how are we ever going to get back into God's presence how will we ever get back into paradise and yet in spite of the fact that no one could figure out uh, what what to do about that sword the prophets kept on prophesying that someday the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea In fact, the same book is the famous prophecy in Zechariah 9 about Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a little donkey. Zechariah first says in Zechariah 9.9, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then, at the end of his prophecy, Zechariah says this in Zechariah 14.21. He says, Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. In the temple, there there were these sacred pots that that were only allowed to be used uh, in that holy spot. But Zechariah says, someday every pot in every kitchen in Jerusalem and Judah will be as holy as those sacred temple vessels. In other words, the whole world will become a holy of holies. The whole world will be filled with the glory and the presence of God again. And do you know what that will mean? Do you know that when the crowd waved those those palm branches, when Yeshua entered Jerusalem, what it meant? This was a a ceremony, a practice done to welcome a king. And in the days of the Maccabees, it was a symbol of Jewish independence. Uh, And it also evokes some amazing biblical prophecies about the return of the king, uh, the return of of God's presence. We read this in, in Psalm 96, verse 12. The trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord when he comes to rule the earth. In Isaiah 55 12, the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees in the field will clap their hands. You know, if you put seeds into a pot of soil and then put it in the dark, uh, away from the sun, the seeds just sort of sleep. Uh, they cannot erupt into all their potentialities. But if you bring it out into the presence of the sun, it explodes with life and growth. What the Bible is saying is that everything in this world, uh, the plants, the trees, the rocks, they're sleeping. They're just shadows of what they'll be in the full-orbed presence of God. They're just shadows right now. Uh, but when the presence of God and the person of Yeshua the Messiah covers the earth again, even the trees and the hills are going to clap and dance and sing so alive they, they will be. And if the trees and the hills in the presence of God were able to clap and dance, what will you and I be able to do? What will we be like? On the overhead, C.S. Lewis says this We want something else which could hardly be put into words. That's why in the oldest stories, we've peopled our air and earth and water with nymphs and elves. That's why our lifelong longing to be reunited with something uh, in the universe from which we feel cut off is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. For if we take the scripture seriously, God will one day give us the morning star. The trees and the hills will sing with us. And so the ancient myths and poetry, so false as history, may be truth as prophecy. The Messiah, when he returns, he's going to bring this. Yeshua is going to bring back the glory of God. He is the ultimate priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the ultimate temple. because He mediates the presence of God for us. God's presence will surround uh, and envelop uh, and immerse us when Yeshua returns, like the water covers the sea, will be healed. This is what Zechariah and Isaiah and all the prophets promise but now what about that sword? What about the sword? Uh, And now we know. Because the book of Isaiah says about the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verse eight, but he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Why is it when John in the book of Revelation looks at the throne of God, the place of ultimate power in the universe, there on the throne of the universe is the slaughtered lamb. The greatest image of weakness and vulnerability possible. A slaughtered lamb. Why? Because this is the greatest kingly triumph in the history of the cosmos. When Yeshua went under the sword, the sword smote him and broke his body. But at the same time, it broke itself. Because the Bible talks about the death of death in the death of Yeshua. He took the sword for you and me. He took it. And that's why at the end of Mark 15, the, the moment Yeshua dies, the veil in the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom by the invisible hands, just ripping it in two, opening the way to God's presence for us. Believers for all time, and not just the high priest, one day a year on Yom Kippur, can now come into God's presence. I'm the overhead. M. Scott Peck, this famous author, here, writes this: How do you defeat evil? It's hard to understand but whenever you see evil defeated, somebody has to sacrifice. And in the overhead, C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way famously in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. He says, when a willing victim who's committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the ancient stone table will crack and death itself will start working backwards. And finally, in the overhead, as one poet puts it, the terrors of God's wrath with me have nothing to do My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. That is the power of Yeshua. The power of the fullness of his transforming presence when he returns. And even now, when you trust in him, he begins to bring that power of God's presence into your life. And he fills you with his spirit. And someday he's going to assume his rightful place and rightful role as king of the whole earth, and he will renew everything. Hallelujah. And now, on the overhead, point number three. How is that character and that spirit led power reproduced in us? This brings us to this curious incident of Yeshua cursing the fig tree. Uh, and by the way, the critics uh, and, and the anti missionaries have had a field day with this account. They've used it for years to bash Yeshua. So let's look at it. Uh, Mark 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving uh, Bethany, uh, and, uh, Yeshua was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if there's any fruit on it. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now on the surface, this sounds really bad. (laughs) He goes to a tree. It wasn't the time for figs. He doesn't find any figs on it, any fruit on it. So he curses it. What? What's going on here? (laughs) As I said, a lot of people have made a big deal over the years of criticizing Yeshua's attitude and his actions here. I want to suggest two possible uh, explanations here. First, this was a prophetic sign act. Uh, One of the most graphic forms of prophetic communication in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Scriptures was the object lesson. Uh, Jeremiah uh, buried a belt. Uh, Ezekiel laid on his side in the dirt. Micah when it walked around naked and barefoot. <laughs> Yeshua's cursing of the fig tree is a similarly is a sign act. So in the overhead, here's Yeshua using the fig tree, a symbol for Israel, to illustrate the sin of hypocrisy. Because the tree had the appearance of fruitfulness, but it was actually barren. And Yeshua was warning the Jewish leadership, the time for repentance was drawing to a close. Yeshua looking for the fruit of repentance. The fig tree represents the Jewish leaders in Yeshua's day. And so, in a deliberate sign act indicating that this first gener- the first generation had, 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 of, of the CE here has failed to bear the fruit of repentance, uh, they had forfeited the coming of the kingdom, and now faced judgment, which actually came in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Indeed, there's a direct link, by the way, in the, in, in the actual structure, the literary structure of the chapter here between the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Uh, that's why Mark interjects his account of Yeshua cleansing the temple between the cursing of the tree and the discovery the next day of the tree being withered. The withering of the fig tree represents the coming destruction of the temple. So that's one explanation of this passage. Here's a second one, and it's this. Yeshua is really not doing anything to the fig tree. Rather, he's getting into your face and mine. He's not really dealing with the fig tree He's dealing with us. And to understand this, we have to recognize there were two kinds of fruit uh, that fig trees bore. Uh, And as as the leaves were first starting to come in, before the figs came, the trees had these little nodules on them, little nubs in the Hebrew called pagim. Uh, And these pagim were edible. And indeed, they were a favorite food of hungry travelers. So Yeshua sees a fig tree and leaf, He walks over to it expecting to find these pagim, uh, these little nubs. And if you you found none, you knew something. You knew that the tree was diseased. Uh, There was something wrong with it. It looked okay from from a distance uh, with all the leaves on it. But if it's not producing these little little nubs, it's diseased, it's dying on the inside. And that's what Yeshua is saying. He's simply pronouncing what had already occurred in the tree. Look where this happens. Again, between verses 11 and 15, between Yeshua's first coming to the temple to observe it and his returning the next day when he cleanses the temple. So what's happening is Yeshua is giving us a parable with this fig tree, a parable against hollow religiosity. He's saying this. Yeshua is about to walk into a place, the temple, that, that religiously is very, very busy, and to bring this home despite how relatively small we are, we here at Esklaim, we're also very busy. And most congregations are very busy. Uh, So many things to do, so much ministry, lots of noise, lots of coming and going, uh, lots of transactions. But at the temple in Jerusalem, there was no true spirituality in it. Uh, There was uh, was, uh, um, no one was actually praying in the court of the Gentiles because it had been transformed into this giant Walmart, (laughs) Uh, this giant merchant's mark. Mark it. And Yeshua is now saying this to us today. If I, Yeshua, have brought the presence of God into your life, if through me, the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, your life is now a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're now filled with the very presence of the God of the universe himself, if that's really in your life, then I want more out of you than just busyness. I want more than just activity. There should be more than just, I read my Bible today and I said my prayers. But Yeshua is asking us today, are you changing in your character? Are you being internally transformed? Are you becoming less anxious and fearful? Uh, and that, that God won't properly direct your life the way you want? Are you overcoming anger? Are you growing in long-suffering and self-control? Are you dying to self? Are you crucifying your ego, becoming less self-centered, less self-focused? Are you humbling yourself and repenting of your pride? Is it obvious to the people you know, uh, that, that uh, the people you know the best, that you have radically changed to the very core of your being? That there's been a dynamic change in your very character? Or are you just busy? Busy with all your religious activities? And your busyness conveniently masks your lack of actual godly character growth. So how do you know that Yeshua is is reproducing his character in you? Well, Jonathan Edwards, in in that same sermon, he says this on the overhead. He says, the paradoxical character of Yeshua, this this combining of traits that ordinarily you'd never see combined in any one person, they'll begin to be reproduced in you. That's how you know you're not just becoming a nicer person or, or a more disciplined person or a more moral person, but you're actually having the life of Yeshua reproduced in you. So here, here's an example. Uh, now, temperamentally, you have different types of people. You've got extroverts, you've got introverts. You have thinkers and you have uh, feelers. You have decisive people and, and process people. People who, who are naturally predisposed to, to one set of character traits or another. But do you recognize the unique kind of character that Yeshua would produce? It's because of the gospel. Every other religion says you're saved, uh, you're connected to God by your moral striving, Every other religion says, do this uh, and you'll live. Live up to these standards, then you'll have enlightenment or God consciousness or or blessing. Live up to these standards and you'll be saved. Now, if that's true, then these opposing kinds of character traits, you know, boldness versus humility, uh, majesty versus meekness, power versus weakness, they'll never be combined. Because think about this if you're saved by your works, here's what happens if you're living up to your standards, you're gonna be confident. Uh, you're gonna feel good about yourself, you're gonna be bold, uh, but you'll tend towards self-righteousness and pride. You'll look down on other people who aren't measuring up. Uh, you'll tend to say to them, "'Come on, what's wrong with you? Suck it up.'" So you'll be bold and assertive, but you won't be vulnerable and humble. On the other hand, when, you, when you're failing to live up to your standards, you know, if, you, if you think you're, you're saved by living up to your standards and now you know you're failing, Oh yeah, you'll be humble now. (laughs) You'll be understanding of others now who fail, but you won't be bursting with glorious enthusiasm and confidence and boldness on the overhead. But what if you're radically loved because of what Yeshua has done in spite of your flaws? What if your relationship with God is completely dependent not on your record, but on Yeshua's? Not on your past, but Yeshua's past. Not on your performance, but on Yeshua's performance. Not in your life, but on his. Then you can be simultaneously righteous in the sight of God and loved and delighted in by God and at the same time still flawed and broken and sinful in yourself. So, on the overhead. So you'll be humbled by the gospel to know that you are so bad that Yeshua had to die for you. There was no other way. But you'll also be emboldened by the gospel to know that you are so valuable to him that he was glad to die for you. Now, if these things come into your life together, regardless of of your natural inclinations uh, and and personality type and uh, character trait, uh, the part of your temperament that's weak will now be strengthened by the gospel. And you become a personal balance, able to move back and forth across these different types of character traits as it's appropriate, whether humble or bold, uh, outspoken or reflective, uh, not stuck in your natural default mode of of heart all the time. That's why in the Gospels, we see Yeshua himself sometimes being bold, sometimes humble, sometimes assertive, sometimes quiet and reflective, as the situation requires. Yeshua has a vulnerable kingliness and a strong weakness. He always does what's needed in every situation, and the Holy Spirit can can now more and more renew you into his image. So ask yourself today. Today is this happening in my life? Are these changes happening? Do I see them? Uh, does your family see them? Uh, do your friends see them? If not, do you truly understand the gospel? And are you relying on Yeshua, not your own self-efforts. Or perhaps he's simply not your day-to-day functional Lord. When Yeshua rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, letting people call him king for the first time, he's purposely forcing everybody's hand When Yeshua, he goes into the temple and he says, this is my house. He's forcing everyone to make a decision. These kinds of claims, they force extreme responses to Yeshua. You either have to crown him or kill him. You either have to accept him or reject him. But one thing you cannot do is say, oh, what an interesting guy this is. (laughs) You cannot relate to Yeshua on the mere periphery of your life. You can't say, Oh, when I have a problem, I'll I'll come to him. No, you must center your entire life on him. That's what Yeshua is saying here. So let me close with this question. I'll ask the music team to come on up. How can you come to grips with someone who has utterly given himself to you, in the overhead here, without you giving yourself utterly to him? Will you say, well, I'm scared to give myself like that? Don't be. Because if you go to him like a lamb... He will defend you like a lion. So go to him. And let his power reproduce his character in you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. As we study this triumphal entry today, uh, we hail you, Yeshua, as our coming king. (laughs) Blessed are you, Yeshua, who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeshua, you are the Lord. (laughs) You are the stone the builders rejected which has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the kingdom through your death and resurrection. You went into Jerusalem, Lord, at the first time on a lowly donkey, but you are returning the second time on a great white war horse where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you, Yeshua, our Lord, to the glory of God the Father, when you return triumphant, Yeshua, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, we, your Jewish people, all of us, will look upon you, the one we've pierced, and mourn for you as one mourns for an only son and all Israel will acknowledge you and cry out Baruch haba b'shem blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and thus all Israel shall be saved thank you Yeshua you are our high priest you are our temple and our tabernacle mediating the presence of the Father as we enter into his courts and like the fig tree Lord you now are looking for fruit in our lives you're looking for the fruit of repentance in us the fruit of repentance in our very lives. So Lord, help me not to get caught up in busyness and religiosity, but to truly seek your face, Yeshua, to make you the center of my life, to dwell in your presence, and by doing so, be transformed more and more into your character and likeness and image. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.